I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. It's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 51, we read Witness by Whitaker Chambers, published in 1952. Whitaker Chambers was born in 1901, grew up in New York. He worked as a laborer before entering Columbia University. He left school to join the Communist Party. He worked in different capacities within the Communist Party before entering the party underground. In the 1930s, he became a Soviet spy, operating mostly in New York and Washington, D.C. He defected in 1939 and joined Time Magazine, where he became editor of the Foreign News section. Under subpoena in 1948, he testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee against his former friend and fellow Soviet spy, Alger Hiss. This book, Witness, is Chambers' autobiography that relates his experiences. Later on, he became a senior editor at William F. Buckley's National Review. He died in 1961. So, as we said, this is Whitaker Chambers' autobiography. It is a gripping book, very fascinating, and reads like a, a spy novel. He opens the book with kind of like a stage setting first chapter to capture your attention, gives a taste of what he'll discuss in detail throughout the book. It's most mostly details of his life. He spends a lot of time giving his detail about every twist and turn of his experience working first in the open communist party in America for the daily worker, which was a communist uh, uh, news uh, daily. And afterwards, uh, after several years of that, he was recruited into the the Communist Party underground, where he ultimately became a Soviet spy, where he was feeding information and, and running other assets in America. The entire book is well worth reading. I, I, I think it definitely sits among the best autobiographies of all time, at least certainly that I've ever read. He has a clear and engaging writing style, excellent writer. You can see why he was why he was able to spend his career at Time Magazine after after he left the Communist Party, and like I say, this book reads like a spy novel. Yeah, it's um, it's gripping. It's real. It's um, like Solzhenitsyn's book. It, it has um, the feel of real literature. So if you're if you're more interested in that sort of format than in the work of philosophy, this is this is it. And it, it there is, I mean, there are ideas in it too. It's not just a what happened in my life. It's, he talks about communism and like why he was attracted to it, why other people were attracted to it, what drove him away from it. But it's a, uh, it's really a, uh, just a, a, there's a lot of moving passages when he just talks about his life and it's a, uh, yeah, well worth your time just as a snapshot of a, a man's life and intellectual journey in the early 20th century. Yeah. As we were talking about just before the podcast, Usually on big books like this, I I do a little bit of skimming, you know, because it's 800 plus pages. But this is one of those books that he, I had a hard time skimming anything because there was just there's so much happening. You, you didn't want to miss what happened next. And I had actually even read this several years ago, 
but even reading it the second time was that good. But, but I think, as you said, Kyle, his reflections of on communism and what it means to be a communist and kind of the soul and the thinking and the mindset. And, and I, I think we'll probably maybe focus a little bit more on those reflections throughout uh, this podcast rather than the events, but I'm mm-hmm. sure we'll have some events too. So he opens up by saying, kind of describing the communist mind. He says, members of the communist party are bound by a semi-military discipline which each man and woman agrees to submit to when he joins the party. This discipline is the communist pride. It means that each of his acts is a contribution to the, of the total action of an army. It means that a small group of disciplined men and women acting as one can accomplish feats impossible to undisciplined groups, many times their numerical strength. The men and women communists and fellow travelers who staffed what they called this fifth column were dedicated revolutionists whose primary allegiance was no longer to any country, nor to tradition, family, community, soil, religious faith. Instead, the primary allegiance was to a revolutionary faith and a vision of man and his material destiny, which was given political force by international communism, of which the American Communist Party and the Russian Communist Party are component sections. You know, neither power nor money moved them, nor was adventure a factor. Faith moved them. So, I mean, you could see the idealism just kind of pouring through the pages that uh, he's they they felt that they were on a mission this wasn't just politics that of the sort that we deal with like you know i'm i'm a centrist or i'm you know a conservative republic you know or a liberal democrat it was more like this is a lifestyle it's a religion you know he, yeah he he calls it he calls it man's second oldest faith basically lumping everything that came before it into a faith that is like what is man's relationship to god how should man live you know, given what he believes about God. And that's, you know, pretty varied across all the different faiths, but they're all, they all have that in common. It's, you know, the question of whatever religion you're a part of is how, how does God command me to live? How should I live and honor him or them or whatever sort of, you know, monotheism or polytheism you believe in his, his point here is that communism is different from all of that in the sense that it, it is a vision without God. It is a vision of a world structured completely around man. You know, no soul, no heaven, just man's vision of how he should best rule over other men in a way that, you know, and it is idealist that that, that sounds sinister because it's hard to describe it in, for me in a way that doesn't sound sinister. But I mean, he talks about, you know, for people who really didn't believe in anything beyond this, that this was an idealistic quasi faith and that, you know, it was attractive to a certain sort of mind, somebody who saw the problems of the world and didn't see any supernatural solution to it and only saw, you know, how should, how should man rule because man is the highest thing in this world. So how are we going to do it? It's interesting to think about it that way. It's a such, we think of it as one ideology among many, like you said, but it's really different in that, completely changes who is at the center of the rules, the law and everything that comes from that. Yeah. He has a, this chapter three where he basically dedicates the whole chapter to diving into why someone becomes a communist and, and what it, what it means to them. I'm going to read some of this. A man does not become a communist because he is attracted to communism, but because he is driven to despair by the crisis of history through which the world is passing. In the West, 
all intellectuals become communists because they are seeking the answer to one of two problems. One, the problem of war, or two, the problem of economic crisis. For while the susceptibility to communism varies among men, the problem of war and economic crisis do not vary. In this period of history, they are constant and must be until one way or the other they are solved. When an intellectual joins the Communist Party, he does so primarily because he sees no other way of ending the crisis of history. In effect, his act is an act of despair, regardless of whether that is how he thinks of it. And to the degree that it is an act of despair, he will desire the party to use him in overcoming that crisis of history, which is at the root of his despair. Few communists have ever made sim- been made simply by reading the works of Marx or Lenin. The crisis of history makes communists. Marx and Lenin merely offer an explanation of the crisis and what to do about it. So, I mean, this is a really dark, pessimistic view of the world. But as you said, Kyle, I think it, it does track with kind of the Christian view maybe of a fallen world, hmm. except rather than looking to God for salvation, they still have those, they still may, you know, ask those same existential questions of why, you know, why is there so much, he says, war in the world or economic crisis is a meaning, you know, why, I think what contemporary Marxists would call inequality, why is there so much social and economic inequality? I mean, Christians would probably reframe it as, you know, the, the problem of death and suffering, you know, those two problems, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's essentially the same. I mean, we're asking, it's kind of that core human question, you know, existential questions about, about the universe and why, why we exist and why there's so much pain and suffering and death and war. And, you know, why, why do so much, so many people, why, why are there rich versus poor and, and, you know, some people suffer more than others, but he asks it from the, from the standpoint of, you know, he, he tells the story about how he lost his belief in God while he was at Columbia university. And so then he needed to turn his attention to something else that could answer these questions. And that, that, um, the question of war too, I think explains why communism got bigger at the time it did. And, you know, at the time when he was coming of age too, you know, people, people like us who were born in, in the seventies, you know, it, as we grew up, world war one, world war two were part of our history with things we knew had already happened. You know, we grew up with, you know, the, the millions killed by Hitler, the millions killed by Stalin, millions killed by Mao. These were like, you know, they were facts that we learned as we learned world history. But imagine how shocking that must have been to people who weren't coming out of a historical background where millions were killed in war. You know, I mean, there was wars always, you know, the Napoleonic Wars were very destructive a hundred years before that. But that sort of massive total war, the meat grinder of the the Western front in the first world war. And, and he talks about, you know, the, the growing feeling that the second one was coming and there was nothing anyone could do about it. It was, it was coming and man was just going to destroy himself through, you know, these war. And, you know, those of us who were born afterwards realized that, you know, we, we didn't destroy ourselves in the second world war. Many millions were killed, but we actually de- defeated a, a bad ideology and maybe increased freedom in a lot of areas as a result. But, you know, going into that, you don't know that. All you see is, you know, another meat grinders coming up and what what's to be done. And it's, uh, I mean, a utopian ideology is 
definitely something that appeals to someone feeling that kind of despair. You know, it's like the world is spinning apart. Everything is chaos. And that's, that's the sort of thing I think he talks about, you know, an intellectual appeals, it appeals to him in that way too, because somebody who's far enough removed to take a, a broader view of the world, you know, he's perfect. He's comfortable himself, but he, he sees everything else as his chaos. And he says, well, there, you know, there must be a system, you know, there must be a way the world can't be just this chaotic there. You know, there has to be a, something that will set it to rights and, you know, communism answers that question it answers it in the way that we now know to be incorrect but it must be very tempting you know as we've talked about before on some of these podcasts it must be very tempting for somebody who sees nothing but chaos and despair to have somebody say well here's the answer to everything it's pretty yeah, right. simple right here's these books and it's not the books like he says that draws you in but the the need for answers and the book fills that need yeah yeah because communism as you say is not just a a, a plan, a political plan of action. It's not just a political platform, but the writings of Marx built on, you know, Hegel's, you know, dialectic of history, which, you know, gives it an explanation of things happen because of the history is moving in a, in a direction, you know, the, the dialectic of, of history and events is, is moving, you know, ever so slowly in, in a, in a certain direction. And, you know, to, the Martin Luther King quote, it's the arc of history is long, but it moves uh, towards justice. You know, that's the kind of the belief and it's, and it's a replacement for more religious belief, which is, you know, humans are here to uh, work out salvation or, you know, whatever it might be to return to God or, you know, return to the next, next life. But without that belief, then yeah, you need, you need something to sort of replace that and, and then kind of a plan of action to tell you what to do. Yeah, and it explains, uh, like like you said earlier, how they have, he, you know, he describes a military discipline within it. And it's the same as if you read about, like, lives of the saints, people being tortured, you know, rather than renounce Christ, you know, people, even in modern times, like the, um, the priests who volunteered to take someone's place in the gas chamber. You know, I mean, that's a, if you don't believe in something much bigger than yourself, that's a crazy thing to do. If you're just a... An, don't believe in anything. It's all about survival, right? You wouldn't ever submit yourself to that. And the yeah. communist, I think, looks at the party and the dialectic of history the same way. You know, it's a, a force that's bigger than himself. So he's willing to betray his country, you know, betray his family, do any sort of, you know, all of the, the spying and unscrupulous acts that are that Chambers describes in this book, it, because it it animates him much as somebody, uh, you know, a man of faith would be animated by his, his God. Real, yeah. it, it, it explains a lot. Um, just that they see it that way. And it's real. I, I think this is really interesting for C, you know, because even as he, even after he left the party and became a staunch anti-communist, reading his words of how he came to it in the first place is better it's better for understanding what motivates communists than reading something you or I wrote who never understood these folks in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm going to read this passage kind of, kind of build on what we're saying It is the crisis that makes men communists. And it is the crisis that keeps men communists for the communist who breaks with the, with communism must break not only with the power of its vision and its faith, he must break in the full knowledge that he will find himself facing the crisis of history 
but this time without even that solution which communism presents. And crushed by that knowledge, the solution which he sought through communism is evil against God and man. I mean, (laughs) uh, yeah, I mean, there's just serious religious, you know, overtones of if you you leave the faith, then you're, what are you left with? Uh, Apostasy from from church, like, what, what are you left with? So Chambers himself says, I was one of those who was drawn to communism by the problem of war. I saw for the first time the crisis of history and its dimension. What moved me was the evidence that World War II was predictably certain. Again, this was in, he, he joined in about 1925, in, in the early 1920s anyway. Obviously, he had seen the outcome of World War I and, and the, the carnage there. What moved me was the evidence that World War II was predictably certain and that it was extremely improbable that civilization could survive it. It seemed to me that the world had reached a crisis on a scale and depth such as had been known only once or twice before in history. In searching for the answer to the crisis, I found nothing but socialism. It's almost like a testimony, you know. You're yeah. you're you're, te- you're, te- you're testifying of your you know your faith. I just I think that, that these were incredibly important insights for us as we as we think about you know even contemporary socialism. You know, as yeah, contemporary socialism is you know the Bernie socialism is more of a political platform i think it's uh the the you know these these tech bernie bros are i don't think have this same religious fervor i think that they just yeah. they see the same you know they see the problem of inequality or whatever and they want to try to solve it but maybe not to that you know religious depth i'm not sure bernie doesn't have that religious depth though yeah <laughs> yeah he might and you know there's probably a few of his more extreme followers who they try and keep out of the spotlight that are feeling that same faith or anti-faith. But yeah, I think man, most Bernie bros are not uh, revolutionary socialists with the kind of military discipline of the men that chambers and men, women that chambers hung out with. And in these early days of the communist party, it's, um, it's interesting that he, he came to communism and describes it as, as almost sort of like a, an epiphany, Mm-hmm. And, but it's also, and he gets into his reasons for leaving it as also, also sort of an epiphany, you know, as here's somebody who, and it gets pretty religious at that point, you know, for him is, you know, somebody who grew up with, he said he was nominally Episcopalian. They went to church sometimes. They went to Sunday school for a time, but they weren't, uh, you know, as like a lot of people, they just didn't really think about it that much. Didn't really have much to do with the faith other than, you know, in, in name. But then it just, at some point he started to realize, you know, as, as Stalin's purges were going on and even, I, I didn't realize how much those purges extended to communists in America who broke with the party, you know, people who would yeah, get those people disappear, gets, you know, either killed or you know, smuggled back to the Soviet union for punishment. I knew, I knew the communist parties here turned on each other and there was always like six communist parties at the same time because they were always fighting over, you know, exactly what kind of communist was the right communist, which is always, that always just seemed laughable because they- Well, a sectarian battle, right? Yeah, <laughs> because there's such a tiny amount, a tiny number of communists in America and yet they can't get together in one party. They all have to fight each other. And reading this, it's like, it's not just comical, it's also uh, murderous at times. And that, 
that was a little surprising. But seeing all that kind of, you know, gave him the epiphany. He tells a story of somebody else who was a communist and her, her father had been, but then left. And uh, she describes it as, I thought her, her quote that he has here is interesting, but, you know, about why she was embarrassed at her father having left the party. But she said he was immensely pro-Soviet. And then you will laugh at me, but you must not laugh at my father. And then one night in Moscow, he heard screams. That's all. Simply one night he heard screams. And then Chambers kind of builds on that and says, you know, that they all knew that people were getting killed under Stalin, like a lot of people, but they didn't hear it. You know, they didn't feel it. It was names, even if it, when it was people they knew, it was more, you know, this means is necessary to achieve our end of true socialism. And then just one day it kind of clicked in them that, you know, it's maybe it's not right to just kill people. Yeah. Even one <clears throat> He says in in 1935 or 1936, I chanced to read in the press a story that said Dmitry Schmidt, a general in the Red Army, had been sentenced and shot in Russia. And for, for whatever reason, he just meditated on that. And he said, I don't know why I read and reread this obituary or why there came over me a foreboding and almost conviction that something terrible is happening. And he goes on to describe what you did. The Great Purge had reached the Red Army. It announced the opening of an immense and bloody engagement. He says, the great purge was in the most literal sense a massacre. The purgees were trapped, arrested, shot, or sent to a Russian slave labor camp on which the Nazis modeled their concentration camps. This massacre, probably the greatest in history, was deliberately planned and executed. In the interest of the revolution, the group of communists headed by Stalin decided that the historical situation through which the world and the communist party was passing justified them in killing off those communists who opposed their indispensable strategy and tactics. Those killed have been estimated from several hundred thousand to several million. This was interesting because he says that the historical situation drove Stalin and others to behave this way, to purge, to murder. And later in the book, he goes on to say that the the horror of the purge and of communism is that acting as a communist, Stalin had acted rightly. <laughs> yeah, I saw <laughs> by that. purging. That was the true measure of Stalin as a revolutionary. He says, <laughs> "Yeah, it's, it's it's he followed the ideology to its logical end." Yeah, you know, and it's so it's you know that kind of explains to me why a lot of communists didn't criticize Stalin at the time, even as his crimes became known. It's just that they were so deeply invested in the ideology that say well yeah i mean if you know a b c you know this is this is how that equation has to work out there's no other way mm -hmm. and it's uh it seems insane from the outside but yeah he was well, he, he was doing what a communist is supposed to do and that, that, yeah and to your point about folks just standing to the side or for making excuses i mean i think this is human nature and we we see it in politics we see it in you know religious cults or something where there's always a reason, you know, there's always a rationale and these things happen in degrees too. It's not just today I join the communist party tomorrow. I murder people. It's, mm -hmm. you know, the slow, but sure. And the, the logic sinks in and, you know, each, at each, at each juncture, it's sort of like, well, that was justified because of this, or that was justified because of that. And yeah, I don't like that, but it was justified because of this. And then one step leads to another, but he says it was communism that was evil 
And the more truly a man acted in its spirit and interest, the more certainly he perpetuated evil. So, I mean, this is his, this is his testament that there's something homegrown. There's something innate about communism that leads in this direction. It's a point that you and I make have made in book after book. And it's, it's a point that Solzhenitsyn makes that this isn't, you know, these are not playing games. Then, you know, there comes a point where this stuff becomes, it comes out of hand and, the, the the inevitable destination, as you said, like the logical end of 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 communism and, and of socialism, is is this. I mean, this is it. And that's yeah, the outcome it, he saw. It it even in the place where it was triumphant, like the Soviet Union, you you, you would think if if you came into communism as an idealist, that, well, okay, that's over now. We don't have to keep killing each other here. Yeah. You know, it, we, maybe the revolution will continue in other countries, but, you know, where it's won, it should be we're approaching this utopia we've been promised, the true socialism and whatnot. But it only gets worse and feeds on itself. You know, there, there were no more czarists left, you know, no more priests, you know, no more any aristocrats. But they still found ways, as Solzhenitsyn described, to, to fill up the gulags and to make them even bigger. So it's, it's it it never stops. It's a it's a machine that runs on blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and his description of of when he left or what it's like to leave, he says, "No one who has not known it can readily grasp the annihilating loneliness of the ex-communist who, after tight associations of the underground, finds himself not only a fugitive from violence, but absolutely alone in a world which has become alien to him, to which he is an alien." to which a few moments before he was an enemy. You know, out of friendship or pity or loneliness, ex-communists often try to move those others, his friends, her friends, to break with them. But, you know, inevitably their comrades betray them. He says, deserters from communism whom the party had killed uh, nearly all made the same mistake, which is they shared in advance with other communists their doubts, fears, and plans to break. So that goes to the violence of, and just the, the nihilism of the communist ideology in general. But, you know, it really struck me. I mean, it's, it just reminded me of what I've read. Of course, I have no experience in this, but you know, about Amish who leave their family for a year or whatever that program is. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, you just feel entirely alone. You don't understand the world. It's, it's completely foreign and alien to you and leaving communism or leaving religion, you know, is, is very similar in that way. All right. So he says that when it comes to the communist uh, penetration of the U S government, you know, this is this is just prior to the Senator Joe McCarthy days, because up to this point, you know, you you really had the folks in government pushing back, and and there's a kind of a political battle because obviously Democrats were were solidly in charge of both the presidency and and the House, you know, for years. This is uh, in the New Deal years. You had Roosevelt and later Truman who were pushing back because they thought, you know, any Republicans who were saying that the, the government was infiltrated was just trying to make score political points. You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was baloney. It's not true. You know, they're, they're, just, they're just trying to use this as, as, a, as a campaign tactic. But Whitaker Chambers says, it is sometimes said that the communist penetration of the U.S. government, while sensational, was after all comparatively small. I think this is a poor yardstick, he says. Effectiveness not numbers, is a more accurate measure of the infiltration. But even if numbers are the yardstick, the communist penetration was numerically great. 
In the 1930s, the revolutionary mood had become so acute that the Communist Party could recruit its agents, not here and there, but by the scores within the U.S. government. And they were precisely among the most literate, intellectually eager, and energetic young men. Of the, he says of the New Deal agencies, the party could penetrate these almost at will. <laughs> <laughs> and so what they wanted to do is, is gradually start moving out and infiltrate the the more core departments like uh, like the State Department in particular, which is where Alger Hiss had his career. He he had moved from one of the New Deal agencies to become first he became counsel for the Senate committee investigating the munitions industry. And it just kind of shows you like, okay, well, we had a communist in the ag department. Is that really that big of a deal? Well, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe not. But Alger Hiss, for example, he was active. This is what Whitaker Chamber says. He was active at Dumbarton Oaks. He was he was sitting behind Roosevelt FDR at Yalta. You know, he was at the San Francisco conference to set up the UN. And later he was president of the Carnegie Endowment for World Peace. So, yeah, I think it can make a difference. And the, and the penetration was pretty deep. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's sort of, uh, it doesn't take millions if you have, a, if you have enough men in important places. And uh, he, he went on to sort of talk about people who were not themselves communists and you know, acted in horror at the suggestion that they were communists, but basically did the same thing a communist agent would do and you know sort of they're uh i don't want to say like anti-anti-communist but i think that's kind of what they were you know sort of folks that they didn't oppose they weren't communists themselves but they thought communist was not like a, a slur it was you know just a it's okay it's a different way of looking at things and you know it sort of gave moral sanction sort of a like a second layer beyond the hardcore of the party there was just enough people in the press and in government who were you know um i think it was lenin who called them useful idiots you know they sort of did the bidding of the party without even being a part of it without having to be suborned or corrupted or enlisted as as spies i guess you you kind of still see that today again you know people who like people who repeat the propaganda of the Chinese Communist Party, you know, yeah. who are, will credulously say, "Well, you know, the government of China says that only three thousand people died in in Wuhan, and, the, and that they have the infection under control," ignoring the hundred years of history that shows us that communist governments say whatever they want. It, the truth has no meaning in their propaganda. It's all about furthering this end of worldwide revolution. And if that means a lie, it means a lie. If it means the truth, it means the truth. But it doesn't, truth or lie has no particular weight in their pronouncements. And yet, you know, you see this this today as people who are not themselves dupes of, or they're dupes, they're not agents. You know, they're people who are, people who repeat these things are not paid to do so by the Chinese Communist Party. But they do it anyway because they're just uh, credulous fools. And yeah. He has such a biting critique of what he calls like the American liberals, the defenders of communism. He says, every move against the communists was felt by the liberals as a move against them. 
The liberals, to protect their power, must seek as long as possible to conceal from themselves and everybody else the fact that the government has been penetrated by communists. (laughs) Uh, But he says, unlike the liberals, the communists themselves understood their superior tactical position and knew that all they had to do was shout, witch hunt, (laughs) for the liberals to rally in all innocence to their defense. I mean, he's, and he says he saw many colleagues at Time Magazine who who just fell for this. He said, like little children, knowing and clever about trifling things while they were extremely resistant to finding out about anything else. He says the overwhelming might of opposition from people came, it came from people who had never been communists themselves and never would be. Mm-hmm. It's just that they they were they were communist sympathizers or at least, you know, they sympathized with with the the goals, if not the actual, you know, actions to to your point. I mean, do we see that today at all? I mean, holy cow, we do. And the China example is perfect. You know, the, yeah, the, the apologizing for Corbin and, and his, you know, basically communism. I mean, it's really striking. And, and I, I I loved that chapter nine. He, in, in chapter nine, he just really went through a lot of this saying that while he was in the, while he was editor of the foreign news section of Time Magazine, I mean, he's just really critical of of the the elites in journalism. He says the fight in foreign news was a struggle to decide whether a million Americans were going to be given the facts about Soviet aggression, or whether those facts were going to be suppressed, distorted, sugared, or perverted into the exact opposite of their true meaning. You know, he said these uh, these journalistic elites dominated all avenues of communication between the intellectuals and the nation it told the nation what it should believe it made up the nation's mind for it they made themselves the experts they controlled the news and opinions you know every time we hear the kind of nostalgic regret for the good old days when when the entire nation was on the same page you know something's lost there but a whole yeah. lot is gained too <laughs> and this is the this is kind of the evidence of that. Yeah, I mean, it's as as many flaws as there are with our, our mass media today. There, there is nothing that unites them all in politically, and that's good. And it, you know, it, it does lead people to pick and choose which news they listen to, and only get facts that go with their existing opinions. But the alternative wasn't, you know, uh, beacons of truth, like you said. It's uh, it was we're still getting facts tailored to a set of opinions but it was somebody else's opinion yeah an, an opinion that was sort of agnostic in the struggle between communism and freedom and was so broad-minded that they were willing to make excuses for and and downplay really horrific crimes you know the new york times is famous for having done this in the 20s you know and they had a reporter over there and observing the Ukrainian famines that were caused by Stalin's policies of confiscation and collectivization and just came back and said that, eh, it's, it's, you know, it's, there's some, some, you know, weather conditions and natural disasters that happen, but really this is a fine place. You know, they, again, was that guy a communist? Maybe I don't, he might've actually been, I don't know, but he was certainly doing the work of the communists whether he actually was paid by them or recruited by them or not. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's, you can see why somebody like, like Chambers would be disgusted at it because he was a communist, you know, he, <laughs> you know, and he saw what it really was. And then here are these people who are 
you know, professing to be not are doing more for it than he was doing. So it's, yeah. Yeah. And he tells a story about while he was at time magazine, he, he ended up joining the, whatever their like guild was for the writers, you know? So in other words, a union and he goes to a union meeting and there were actual communists there who were just standing up and parroting, you know, it's just pure pop propaganda. And he couldn't believe that so many of his colleagues and, and other writers, you know, are just like, just like taking this on face value. Mm. And he stands up and says, he's like, don't, don't just eat what you're spoon fed by these communists, you know, <laughs> you know, like let's think this through. And, and afterwards he has a great story about, he says some socialite, you know, with, with good parents and she had a PhD. And so she, you know, she's an intellectual and very bright or whatever, and comes to him and says, you know, how dare you call us communists? Although he hadn't called them communists. He was, he was saying, don't listen, don't just, don't just swallow wholesale, you know, all everything that these communists are telling you. He knew they were communists because he, but they didn't anyway, how dare you call us communists? And, and he said, you know, he's, he's, throughout his career, like after leaving communism and especially during the, uh, the, his trials and everything, he just said, he just came across scores of people like this who were, he says, just as impeccably pedigreed socially and culturally poised and just as exactly witless. <laughs> <laughs> like they just, they're defenders, but they, it's almost like they don't even know that they're defenders. And he, to your point had, he knew these guys inside and out. Like he had, he had been one, he knew them, spent years with them. So again, a lot of this book, most of the book is relates his experiences on a, on a, on a detailed level, you know, his day to day, what he did, you know, first as a writer for the daily worker. And then, you know, later what he did as a, as a Soviet, a Soviet agent and as an asset. And, uh, a good bit of the book is, is dedicated to his uh, relationship w- with Alger Hiss Hiss was uh, another Soviet agent underground, and as we said, he he uh, he served in prominent positions in the State Department. About you know the last 150 pages or so uh, relates the, the Alger Hiss trial. Won't get into the details here, but uh, but you know Hiss was basically being charged with perjury for lying about being a communist or not. That in and of itself is there's a there's a lot of spy versus spy, and it's it's really fascinating because mm. was cha- Whitaker Chambers had had hidden a bunch of the documents he'd gotten from Alger Hiss and the, the microfiche or whatever he'd hid in, in this uh, hollowed out pumpkin or whatever. So the, the, some of this, some of this evidence was later known, came to be known as the pumpkin papers and that sort of thing. But, you know, he relates uh, his relationship with, with Hiss and Hiss's wife. And they were very close on a personal level. Like they were true friends. You know, he says they, he says they were as, as friends, as close as a man ever makes in life. But, you know, later to, to some of the points that we discussed before, like, you know, like when he was deciding to leave, he was lonely. And also, you know, like he felt like he had seen the light. And so he wanted to share that. And he says, he, he, he says, I, in my wishfulness, nursed the unlikely hope that my break might have shaken Alger Hish. But of course, nothing could have been less realistic. He says it failed to measure accurately how much Hiss's regard for me had been regard for me as a communist organizer, you know, and. They mm-hmm. had this. Uh, they had this last uh, falling out. You know, when, he t- when we turned to walk in different directions, it would be as men whom history left no choice but to be enemies. You know, everything has this sort of epic uh, 
you know, uh, exalted feel to it. But, you know, it's kind of sad because, you know, we, I think as humans just have a tendency to think of like the bad guys as more robotic, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, but there's a lot of humanity in this book, a whole lot, you know, his, his relationship with, with the hisses, you know, he has a lot of detail about just day-to-day life within the party, like as a, as a, as a, as an agent and, you know, and working within the party, it's a whole lot like anybody's work day, you know, it's still work, you know, he's still <laughs> yeah. going to work, you know, he's still pulling levers and, you know, writing up memos and that kind of thing. And, and there's just a, a mundaneness uh, to it that I think is really interesting and it gives, you know, real insight. So it's not, it's not like a, James Bond 007 type spy novel. It's more like it's, it's closer to a Lacare novel, I guess, in that just the the gritty nihilistic realism of of everyday work. And 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 you and I discussed this a little bit before the podcast, but you know, when he talks about his his years, his growing up years, his youth or whatever, and his uh his dad was very cold and distant and later he used to find out it was a was actually a closeted uh, homosexual and you know so very unhappy his mom was was neurotic he had his grandma was was uh, like clinically insane he he had a brother who was who was suicidal and deeply nihilistic who uh, who ended up committing suicide and uh, you know it's, it, the book relates his Chambers is, you know, struggle to try to help his brother and everything, but all of these factors in his young life, you know, brought him to the point where he, he was looking for something bigger, you know, something to answer questions, something to answer those big existential questions. So, I mean, there's a lot of depth in this book. Yeah. I mean, you can see it in miniature as a sort of, like we discussed in other contexts, um, when all the things that support a person in society are broken down, it leads him to search anywhere for answers, you know, and one of those things that's supposed to support you is your family. But if your family life is also is as chaotic as is, and you know, it didn't even look chaotic from the outside, you know, you, the way he describes his family. I mean, it, if you weren't a member of it, you might not see all of the tumult and unhappiness that was in it, but you know, without that and without, and you know, without any other external structures, to explain the world to him it uh, it does explain why somebody could despite you know being an intelligent and you know thoughtful person find himself in the lap of a an ideology that he would later realize is uh evil yeah all right any closing thoughts um no i just mostly what i what i said at the open i think this is a and, and what you said, it's a it's a fascinating, well written tale of uh, a man's journey into and out of the communists' party, and and how a guy went from very one extreme to another, and in his views of that party, and it, I think it's a real good explanation of how of what motivates the communist and what motivates the anti-communist, and it. Um, it's a you know beautifully written and uh, an engaging book. So if if you're if you're interested in that sort of thing, this this could definitely be worth your time. I, I thought it was for me. Yeah, I agree with all that. It's uh, it's both a page turner as far as the action 
and also just has real depth as far as like there's real humanity in the book and and he's an incredible writer so agree with all that all right that's it for wicker chambers catch us next time thanks